Jordan. Sam, yeah. Hey, how's it going, man? Not bad, yourself? I'm, I'm good. I'm just at my parents right now, and um, they always get calls from telemarketers, but they were busy, uh, you know, cooking dinner, so I, I just picked up the phone for them, and um, it was a guy from the province newspaper. You ever get a call from them? I, no, I haven't got a call from them in particular, but yeah, telemarketers, I've, I've been there. You just kind of want to say, I don't have time, and, and hang up. Yeah, but I'm not any good at that. Like, I don't, I say that. I say, you know, I don't have time. And then, of course, they expect you to say that. So they have a thing ready to, you know, quickly cut you off before you hang up and get a, a question in. Right. And I just can't, like, I get trapped in it and I can't get out of it. What was it that he asked you? Well, like, he asked me, basically, he asked me, why, why don't you want to subscribe? Mm-hmm. Um,. And I just told him, you know, because I was kind of put on the spot and I couldn't think of a polite lie really fast. So I just told him, like, the province is a pretty shitty newspaper. <laughs> How did he respond to that? You know, he kind of paused for a second and then he, then he kind of launched into this little speech about how the actual newsprint they use now, like the paper they print on, is really biodegradable and the process is super green. Um, which doesn't didn't really have anything to do with what I was talking about, <laughs> but it's good, right? So I said, "Well, that's good," but I um, I'm still not interested. And he kind of pressed further, like he he really it seemed like he really wanted me to tell him why I didn't want to try. <laughs> Knowing you, you went on this rant about the state of modern journalism to this telemarketer. That's what happened, right? <laughs> well, yeah. Well, like, okay, so. After about 10 minutes of ranting, he actually hung up on me, which is why I'm calling, because I don't know, like, if that's ever happened before, that a telemarketer has actually hung up on the on the person I that they're talking to. I right? don't think I've ever heard that happen. So, yeah, I just irritated him. Like, I get, what happened was he, you know, he asked me, why not? Uh, and I told him, like, what's the point of subscribing to a daily newspaper that doesn't really do much investigation um, in the age of Twitter because, I mean, they're just going to rewrite the Globe and Mail stories or, you know, the New York Times stories. And um, I subscribe to both of the Twitter feeds, so their intern sends out, like, a tweet as soon as the news breaks, you know, in the middle of the night or whatever. And so every time I wake up, I've already got all the fresh scoops. Like, I don't have to wait for them to sort of poorly rewrite the time space. Was this telemarketer, like, versed in these sorts of, sorts of arguments? Could he respond in kind with um, standing on the merits of the paper itself? What did he say? No, he doesn't care. He doesn't, you know, the, the, the telemarketing company pays him probably minimum wage or whatever. He's not, he's not like, a well-paid journalist for the province so he just kept saying like oh well we can throw in a Canucks themed tote bag or 50% off lift tickets to Whistler you know like buy one go on free steak at the tag so you go on this uh, this sanctimonious rant about you probably mentioned the fourth branch of government the duty to speak truth to power and his response is we can give you a 50% off steak at the keg <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, that's not completely valueless, I guess. 
but it wasn't directly related to yeah my ramblings that's for sure so i don't i don't know what to make of it I, like maybe this is like the a prophetic like death bell of the newspaper or something can you imagine a utopic world where he says well, we can offer you 50% off Truth and Power. We can hire seven new investigative journalists for you. Yeah, yes, sir. Two Watergate coming right up or whatever, right? <laughs> yeah. Welcome to the Terry Project Podcast on CITR 101.9 FM at the University of British Columbia and now available on iTunes. I'm your host, Gordon Caddick, and today we'll be looking at journalism. This is part one of a two-part episode. First, I'll be speaking with Peter Klein, the former producer of 60 Minutes and Emmy Award-winning investigative journalist. I had a situation where I was pressuring the Pentagon, um, this is when Colin Powell was Secretary of, of, of Defense, pressuring the Pentagon for some information, and they literally called, called up um, CBS and said, we're going we're gonna to block you guys from access to the Pentagon if Peter Klein doesn't give up and you know, chill out and stop asking for this information. Then, I'll be speaking with Jennifer Newsom, the director of the new film Misrepresentation, which recently screened at the Vancouver International Film Festival. Women are only 3% of propositions in mainstream media. So what that means is that 97% of what you see and hear comes from the male perspective. I'm here in the studio with Brian Platt, the features editor of the UBC. That's the campus paper here at the University of British Columbia. We're also on the phone today with Peter Klein, the former producer of 60 Minutes and the Emmy Award-winning investigative journalist. The three of us are going to talk today about the state of modern media. This is part one of a two-part discussion. You can find the second part on the next episode of the Terry Project podcast. Uh, thanks so much for joining me. Do I have both of you? Yep. Yep. Great. So... There's a bad news story in journalism, so we're going to start off on a little bit of a sour note, and I hope by the end of this conversation we can, uh, we can, we can end on a positive. But um, right now, the, the, state, the state of journalism is undoubtedly in question. Um, newsrooms are shrinking, international bureaus are closing down, um, investigative journalism seems to be on the wane, higher proportions of newsrooms or news stories are coming directly from PR firms, government spokespeople, and paid representatives. Print media seems to be dying. Our media companies are becoming more and more centralized. Loud voices, demagogues, seem to be the uh, most popular voices in popular press. So what I want uh, what I want to talk about today is the status of of the old guard. Um, I understand that maybe there wasn't a glory days of journalism where we could hearken back to the the intrepid and fearless uh, watchdogs of government that journalists were. Maybe they never really were, but there seems to be they seem to be failing us on a new scale. And so I wanted to ask both of you guys: Am I right in this characterization? Well, you know, obviously you ask somebody who's working in journalism how journalism is doing, they're going to give you maybe a not totally unbiased perspective. But um, 
you know, I think there's there's for all the times that that there are things going wrong and people screwing up, you can point to just as many really amazing articles and investigative work, and and people who have really gone uh, above and beyond in in you know keeping governments and keeping institutions honest. A good example of that is what happened in. Um, England over the past year, or the past few months, I guess, even when the scandal broke out with uh, all the phone hacking going on. Well, the reason why that scandal was exposed and, the, and that um, Murdoch's uh, company was brought to account for it is because of the work of The Guardian and Nick Davies um, pursuing that story relentlessly for six years. And so at the same time it was a story about a newspaper scandal, it was also a story about a newspaper doggedly pursuing that story until the people who had screwed up um, were exposed and held accountable for it. So I, I really think that from my perspective, looking at it for, for all the things, for all the problems out there that you can find, you can find just as many good things. And you could probably find still today more good things than bad. Yeah, I mean, it, they, I think there's still an enormous amount of, of good investigative reporting that's uh, that's done. The way it's done, though, uh, and the, and the sort of sources of it have changed. You know, it used to be not that long ago, certainly when I started started working in in this business 20 years ago, that um, news organizations, whether they be newspapers or radio or or, or television, felt like you know we have to do. We have to, and we want to do investigative reporting. Our audience wants it. For our own credibility, we have to do it. We're going to fund it. It's expensive. You know, it's always been expensive. That's just the you know the, the cost per minute or the cost per column inch um, of an investigative piece is always going to be more expensive than a non-investigative piece. So there's, there's that that's that's just a constant, right? It takes more time to do that. But but they would make the calculation that we have to do this. You know, that our audience wants this, and it's a good budget. It's a good business decision. That has changed for a variety of reasons. I think partly because audiences have shrunk. So you know, the advertising dollars or the funding dollars um, have have diminished, and and the news organizations have made a calculation. Not all of them, but many of them, and said, you know, we can't do as much, or we can't do any in some cases. And but what's happened, uh, particularly in the United States, but to to a lesser extent, at, but but a growing extent in Canada, is um, and in, and in Europe, is that that philanthropists have, have started to fill that role. Like, role. like ProPublica, for instance, in the United States, they do some of the best investigative reporting in the U.S. Mostly domestic, mostly American-focused uh, investigative reporting, but. You know, they have done some incredible stories. They won a Pulitzer Prize last year for a self-published, it's the first time that anyone has ever won for a self-published web piece. Um, and I thought, you know, there, there are problems with that, which we can, which we can discuss, but at least, at least the fire is still being kept alive. Um, and maybe someone else is holding the match, but, but there is still a lot of that work being done. Um, there's a tremendous uh, piece in the Times, I think it won a Pulitzer in 2007, about how Pentagon-paid uh, generals were coming on the Daily News, yep. on MSNBC, ABC, um, spouting uh, propaganda for the war and uh, and doing it with a an air of impartiality and obje objectivity. And so I think we what we need to talk about when we talk about the journalism industry is also this parallel industry, the public relations industry. There are exponentially more PR professionals than are journalists, um, and they seem to be growing at a faster rate. So how has this shaped, how has this affected um, the state of journalism? Well, I mean, I, if it's okay with you, I'd love to just kind of put the question to, to, to Brian to see if this is something that you guys deal with at, at the UBC. Is this, uh, I mean, do you guys, I, I assume you, you probably get a lot of press releases. Um, how do you deal with that? 
Well, I mean, I think the way we look at it is the fact that you have to know what's going on, and the and the and it the especially. We're, I mean, we're not we're not typical of most newspapers, right? In that almost everything we do is run by volunteers. At least a lot of our writing, our editors are paid, our writers aren't, or most of them aren't. And uh, a difficulty with that is is having enough people out in the field to know what's going on. So for us, a lot a lot of it comes from the press release, and I think, or to at least tip us off that this is happening. And um, I can say that the way that we we're always wary about just rehashing something that's been given to us by the person who has tried to promote what's going on. You have to be willing to look into it and not just take uh, a press release or an interview with that person or anything along those lines at its word. You have to be aware of, of that danger and go at it. And you also you know, have to, at the same time that you're going to report on it, have um, a little bit of analysis on your opinion page of somebody who is going to take a stance one way or another so it's not so that you know you can create that sort of argument in your pages about whether something is uh, everything that it's being made out to be or not. Right. No, and, and I mean you know as a regular reader of, of the paper, I, I my sense is that that you guys do that. That you don't just you know reprint press releases. And what one of the surprising experiences for me after I left sixty minutes full time, you know sixty minutes, I, I did I, I did my story and, and it was done and I moved on and, and it aired and and the PR people took care of doing PR for it. Uh, I moved to, to Canada, I moved to Vancouver, set up a production company and started doing my own productions and, and all of a sudden I'm a businessman and I'm, you know, I want to drum up as much business for my production company as possible. And our first pro- production we did won a whole bunch of awards and, um, and so I thought, okay, well this is good, I'll put out a press release. I, know, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I wrote, wrote, wrote something up. It wasn't too kind of self-congratulatory, but it was, you know, it was accurate, it was completely accurate, and I sent it off to, to I won't mention the newspaper, but a major paper, um, and, uh, you know, major mainstream newspaper, and I could not believe that, like, two days later, they printed word for word what I wrote with someone else's byline on it, okay. and I was like, this is crazy. They didn't call me. They didn't fact check this. I could have said I won a Nobel Peace Prize, and would they have printed it? I don't know. Um, and they took my words. They like. I thought they would just use this information to say, "Oh, cool. Maybe we'll look into this, or maybe we'll lump it together with a piece on something else." They and and this is not the, that's not the first that's not the only time it's happened to me. It's happened to me two or three other times where I've sent press releases out and people have caught have have run them nearly verbatim and that's what made you know that to me uh <laughs> it, it made me realize like wow there really is a lot of laziness and a lot of sort of desperation for copy out there if, if they would do that and you know sort of turning back to to your question uh you know with with uh with the pentagon's project there to to kind of spin uh this is under under the bush administration um to you know, send people out there who who are supposedly uh, independent uh, commentators for for mostly for the cable channels who were really on the, on the payroll of the Pentagon. You know, again, that's the twenty four hour twenty four hour cable needs um, pretty much twenty four hours of stuff, right? And they got to right. fill the airtime, uh, and so there there's a little bit of desperation there for uh, anyone to come on there to talk about things. Um, and unfortunately, there wasn't wasn't too much scrutiny about who those people were. There does tend to be this um, something that uh, I think it's Jay Rosen from NYU, the journalism professor, calls the cult of the savvy politician. Um, and journalists, what they do is they tend to um, 
fixate and, and focus on on how good a politician is rather than any semblance of his his or her objectivity. So you have all sorts of cases where you take for instance the coverage of debates, right? You'll have debates with CNN political analysts after a debate talking about how um, how good they did, how well they sold their message, but there's no semblance of a discussion on the actual ob objective merits of their arguments or these sorts of things. So do you, do you guys both get the sense that, like, journalists seem to be tremendously invested in the political culture more so than um, some objective measures of, of, of what, what truth is? Is, is that a, tr a new trend, or has it always been that way? Well, uh, I mean, I, I know like a, a, the famous example that a lot of people will talk about is is the press correspondence dinner in the U.S. where it's all the journalists and all the politicians are supposed to be covering in one room, all joking around and making fun of each other and laughing. And I think there's even an incident, uh, an incident a little while ago of um, uh, like a, a water gun fight that broke out at right. some Joe Biden and Wolf Blitzer, yeah, right? Something that they were both at, <laughs> and you know, I think it, it's it's a the the journalists who are sort of assigned to cover. Um, politi you know, parliament and politicians, and and you know whatever country they're in, uh, I think I I think it is really there is without ever having you know any direct experience of this obviously except in a minor way covering student a very minor way covering student politics at UBC it's really easy to get sucked into that uh, environment and to get seduced by going to the uh, fun swanky parties and that sort of thing and becoming too friendly with the people who you're supposed to be covering you can get a benefit out of that which is when when something juicy comes up they'll give you that information and you can cover it but of course you're getting it you have to be aware of the source you're getting it from and their agenda and and i i, I think there's a real danger whenever you get too too friendly with the people that you're supposed to be covering and it happens it happens at ubc uh, with the people that our newspaper is supposed to be covering just as much as it happens, you know, at the White House. <laughs> no, I, I think I think you're right. It, it's very easy to get sucked into that, and it's it, it's a game, really. I mean, I, I had a situation where I was pressuring the Pentagon. Um, this is when Colin Powell was Secretary of, of, of Defense, pressuring the Pentagon for some information, and they literally called called up CBS and said, "We're going to we're going to block you guys from." to the Pentagon if Peter Klein doesn't give up and, you know, chill out and stop asking for this information. I mean, it's to that level where, where you know, 60 Minutes is kind of outside of the, the regular news world, so, it, you know, we don't, it doesn't really affect us one way or another if, if, the, if the, the evening news folks can't, can't have access, but I mean, obviously we're good, good you know, journalistic citizens and we don't want to screw our colleagues, and I, we figured out a way, you know, a way around it, but... Um, but I mean, it was interesting that sort of kind of one hand, one hand washes the other kind of uh, attitude that was going on. Like, you you need to keep getting access to us to do your work, and if you do, if you're too uh, aggressive and you pressure us too much, you're not going to get that access. Um, I mean, that said, in the in the debates, I mean, I've watched a lot of the American uh, political debates, the Republican primaries, and I mean, one of my favorite things. Um, is uh, what Anderson Cooper does, and I'm sure other journalists do too. Is, uh, CNN calls it keeping them honest, where they fact check the 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 debates and they they go through every single point that that each candidate makes and and checks it. And if you watch this, I mean, you really feel like you've watched a a, a, 
a work of fiction with these debates because every single person, not only not every single person, but very very often the politicians not only are just not only are spinning things. I mean, spin is one thing where you kind of take the reality and kind of take a, a particular approach on it. But if you say, you know, job job growth went up forty eight percent in 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 my state in the last three months. And it, it didn't. There's no. There's no conceivable numbers in which you can get that. You just made it up. Um, that's what these guys do. And and you know, CNN has actually done a really good job at at, at vetting this. Um, now, of course, they're not doing that the moment after the debate. There's only so much that, that can be done. You know, in in terms of the time frame. And and I think the journalists respond probably the way a lot of people respond. Where you know, how did so and so come across? You know, if if. If Rick Perry's bumbling um, and kind of screwing up his his syntax and everything, and comes across as not terribly bright, that's the that's sort of a first impression, and that's what they're going to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know, for better or worse, that has lasting impact. Um, and in that case, I think it, it significantly affected uh, Rick Perry's uh, uh, standing in, in the polls. You're definitely right to highlight the the keeping in on segment segment. I think it's tremendous. But it always struck me, and I think this was John Stewart that said this. But isn't this what you're supposed to be doing all the time? <laughs> right. And even the phrase investigative journalism seems somewhat redundant to me. Isn't that uh, the very nature of journalism? But uh, for for the next question, I wanted to maybe talk a little bit about the politicization of uh, of journalism um, in particular we have this um, this really glaring case when the Bush administration started um, torturing people by waterboarding them uh, the word uh, waterboarding no longer meant uh, no, was no longer torture even though for um, literally uh, th- as, as long as we've used the word it wasn't a political issue it was just clear waterboarding is torture but um, suddenly when uh, when both party when one party started um, uh, trying to change the definition the New York Times would write these nuanced op-eds and say well if we called it torture this would be somewhat of an activist stance and we're going to try and you know just from so basically what they were doing was um, was changing the definition because of the politics rather than sticking to um, what was for so long regarded objective objective truth. And and you have all sorts of other instances, especially when it's uh, just a, um, a dynamic between left and right where Barack Obama is sort of painted the tough on Wall Street character even though he's the um, largest recipient um, more than all the other GOP candidates combined from Wall Street funds. He's the one that's instigating the socialist health plan, even though his health care plan is literally written word for word by a former health care lobbyist. So, I mean, where does this come from? Why this, this unwillingness to just stand on what the New York Times has said what waterboarding was for 100 years? Why suddenly change it? And why not call Barack Obama's health care plan, not the socialist plan, but but what it really is. Why, why do you feel that um, news, um, the old guard has shown an unwillingness to stick to it? I think not for the first time, uh, Gord, that you and I could have a pretty long argument over the premise of the of the question in some ways. But um, I'll say I'll say this much, which is that. Um, um, you know, on one hand, it plays into the same thing before, where you have to, you have to have that constant battle between um, cutting off access to something you need to cover by, by really getting on their, on their bad side, and you've got to sort of pick your battles in that way, and also uh, covering them critically. But when it comes, especially to word choice, and I don't know if a lot of, I don't know if a lot of um, 
media institutions were calling it socialist. I mean, I'm sure that some were, but other me- media articles that I read weren't calling the plan socialist. But I know what I'm guessing, for example, when the New York Times was deciding what word to use for waterboarding, and in, a, in much uh, obviously less significant examples, there are times in our newspaper office where we have to decide what word to use. And it's an acrimonious, uh, really extraordinarily intense battle argument that can you know have people yelling and throwing things across the room at each other over whether you should whether one word is better to use than another word and i think that i don't think it's right and i suspect that in places like the new york times and obviously i've never been there and been in one of those rooms but i I suspect that that was the result of a really long heated intense debate among the editors over whether that was the right word to use or not and i bet you there's people who could argue very persuasively to you about why they chose the word that they did and i i'm just i feel a little bit hesitant to just chalk it up to sort of politics I mean, I, I think that I, I, I agree with you, uh, Brian, and I think that part of it is that that um, I, I genuinely believe that, and I, I mean, I know a lot of people who work at the Times that that it's not um, necessarily the, oh we we, we don't want to you know piss off people in government, so we're going to do this. I think in some ways it's it's the it's real it's a real awareness of the audience and saying you know if we if we use a loaded word like torture, then we're we're already seen as we're we're seen as coming at it from a particular perspective. We have taken um, a, a stance on it. Now, maybe maybe they should. You know, I mean, if if, if the the Nazis are marching into to, to ghettos in Poland and rounding people up and shooting them, you know, do you use a euphemism and say, you know, they're they're relocating people and forcibly. Uh, uh, you know, detaining people? No, they're going and shooting people and, and murdering people. And murder is murder, and, and call it what it is. Um, I mean, even the term ethnic cleansing. You know, I covered ethnic cleansing in Bosnia. It's, it's such a, a cleansing. It's, it's such a kind of a bizarre term. Um, it, they were rounding people up and at gunpoint forcing them to leave their homes. Say what it is. Um, so. I think there's a genuine criticism there, uh, but 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 I also see the other side where if we use the word torture, then we're already seen as coming at it from an activist standpoint, and we'll lose half the audience. We'll lose the credibility because, especially if you think of the American audience after 9/11, several many years after 9/11, there was a general. Um, Consensus, uh, I should say consensus, but but polls showed that the majority of Americans favored the use of extraordinary measures in against terrorists, and that was just you know that was well established. So um, if if you have the majority of the audience thinking, well, you know, it's these guys are bad guys who want to kill us, and and they may know where the bomb is hidden, and and, and we should be using uh, extreme measures to do it. Um, and then the newspapers using the word torture, and and you you agree with the extreme extreme measures, then then you're going to then discredit the 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 reporting. So I think the 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 argument, whether it's right or wrong, that that I think a lot of journalists make is that we're going to just rather than injecting our opinion, we're going to just state, we're going to give them the rope essentially and let them hang themselves. We're going to state what's happening rather than you know making a value judgment and saying this is what you know look at this horrible thing they're doing we say they're taking somebody and shoving them their head in underwater for extended periods of time dozens of times until they confess and and you know then there's lots of questions about the, the, the credibility of that confession because who knows if they're really telling the truth 
Access to money during the studies at UBC will most likely be limited, but it is a priority of the AMS Food Bank to ensure your access to food is not. The AMS Food Bank provides emergency food relief seven days a week for all UBC students. To volunteer with the Food Bank or for inquiries about how to take advantage of the services provided, contact them at foodbank at ams.ubc.ca. For more information, find the AMS Food Bank on Facebook or feel free to visit anytime across from the Wellness Center and Sprouts. Welcome back to the Terry Project Podcast on CITR 101.9 FM at the University of British Columbia. I'm your host, Gordon Caddick, and I'm on the phone with Jennifer Newsom, director of the new film Misrepresentation, which recently screened at the Vancouver International Film Festival. It's a film about media representations of women, or rather, their misrepresentations. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us. Let's jump right in. What is the prevailing misrepresentation of women in media? What effect does it have? Sure. So the media is this great pedagogical force of communication in our society, um, which is dictating our cultural values and our gender norms, is telling us that a woman's value lies in her youth, her beauty, and her sexuality, and not in her capacity to lose. So what this does is it communicates um, to, to, and, and, uh, to young women and men that women are second-class citizens and um, that their, uh, again, their value lies in their youth and their beauty and sexuality. And, and this ultimately discourages young women from having um, a sense of, of self outside of the physical um, and from feeling confident and from pursuing leadership positions. And what it does to young boys in particular is it continues um, to perpetuate a, a norm in the American culture um, which is that women are second-class citizens and that um, women are, are here as body top. Why are media companies doing this? Like, uh, where does this prevailing image come from? And why have we not been able to change it? So the companies are doing this because, you know, they're really... There's so much competition now for eyeballs and ratings that um, one of the things that everyone seems to be falling back to is the sex self. And so they think if they put a sexy news anchor or a beautiful um, lead character in that film, that people want to see it. And mm. one of the reasons, though, that in particular women are objectified, although men are increasingly objectified, but one of the reasons we see so many women objectified is, sure, film, TV, news, they're all visual mediums. 
But at the end of the day, it's because women are only 3% of thought positions in mainstream mm. media. By mainstream media, I'm talking about advertising, publishing, news media, and entertainment. So women are only 3%. So what that means is that 97% of what you see and hear comes from the male perspective. And that's not, and by the way, that's a very small perspective. It's not all men. It's just the men who are at the top running these companies. And, and, but what's wrong with that is it's not, it's not even really that it's wrong. This is not a male versus female thing. But what it is is, it, you know, we're America's supposedly this great democracy, and yet we're only telling stories that are of interest to half of the population or that are about half of the population. All of the, the stories and the all that is inspiring to women is, is just not even presented to us. So, and, and so much of this has to do with the fact that Advertisers, in particular, um, there's a study that, that that came out that basically says that the more TV boys and men watch, the more sexist they are in their attitude and behavior, and the more TV girls watch, the lower their self-esteem and the more insecure they are. And that kind of sums it all up. The media makes women more insecure so that they buy X, Y, and Z, and then the media tells boys. Um, but their role in, in life is to be um, powerful and in control. And so the first telling, everything that's sort of power-oriented and authority and dominant, you know, kind of even violent point. And that creates a really unhealthy culture. That's something in your film that particularly spoke to me when you, when you juxtaposed what the sort of male archetypes were, these strong men um, pursuing their, their destinies or fulfilling their um, insatiable ambitions when the female protagonists, and there aren't many of them, but when there are female protagonists, most of those stories revolve around men. Not only media, but our, but our culture... We place value on a baby girl's beauty more so than more so than we do a, a baby boy. But always, so this young girl grows up thinking, for valuing herself through her beauty and using her body as a a, a means um, of self-realization. That even you know, I mean, obviously, this, I, I'm generalizing, but this is what uh, what our culture and then media and advertisers and communities for advertisers then are selling to these young girls and um, right now in particular they're selling sex to young girls and young boys and and then they're in, increasingly selling violence to young boys through video games and, and a lot of the content on TV and, and films and all of this just continues to hold girls back because we get extra distracted and consumed with wanting to perfect the body or whatever. And meanwhile, boys are fed that they can be weak. Do you think that's, um, that's something of a product of what you spoke to earlier about how um, 3% of that market is, is women and the other 97% are men so that men really in leadership roles only see other men, right? Is that sort of what's influencing this this image of, of the, the male leader, just the, the fact that there are no women, or are very few women leaders in media? Yeah, I mean, there's a definite connection with the fact that because there are women are only 3% of leadership positions, or of, of, of um, clout positions in, in media, it, it, it's a, a, a boy's world or a man's world it's not even that it's 
you know, that they're being covert about it and, and the, the leaders, although some perhaps are wittingly creating a media landscape that sort of disparages and, and diminishes women, but really for the, for the most part, it's just, it's not even in their consciousness to include women at the table or to be thinking about lifting women up as they're trying to sell to them. Yeah, I mean, here's an example. We, we had um, a screening at the Paley Center recently, and Nancy Gannis, who's the executive producer of Pan Am, spoke about when she, she's one of a few um, producers, when she pitched the film to, or the TV series to ABC, they gave her all these male executives to um, work with her. And the executives came up with the, the banner ad, which was going to be a naked Jordan behind a banner that said Pat Cannon. Nancy, who did not have that experience when she herself was a Cannon stewardess, said, no, we are not doing this. This is not the Playboy Club. This is not about nudity. This is about real young women who lived a very glamorous life sending the wrong message. And and she needed to be, and she thought about it, and she brought her way. And, I mean, even, for example, even in, in wardrobe, they wanted really, really short skirts, and she thought to have the hemlines lowered because that was the reality. But the advertisers were like, ooh, eyeball sexy. What's funny to me is that I don't think advertisers get that women don't want to see other women all being all sexy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of, unless, unless I'm just, you know, old and married and have kids and <laughs> have changed my tune, I don't think I've ever really been turned on by seeing another woman, you know, totally sexed up. I think it's actually a turn off. What would you like to see represented if you could put it in a blurb? I want to see working mothers represented in the media more, and I want to see more stories about working mothers. Um, and I say that because it's interesting. I did an interview with Nina Tassler at CBS, and Nina told me, and I thought this was really interesting, but I didn't quite get enough from her to actually buy it, that um, whenever in all of their shows that their um, sort of test audiences always have issue with a working mom. They're concerned that the working mom, um, they're concerned about the kids and that the working mom isn't um, around enough for the kids. And so they never like having their female lead characters be working and a mother. And I challenge that because, uh, especially given our modern-day economy, there's so many more dual-income households. I don't remember the exact percentage. I know it's above 70%, but... Of, of our families are dual income or single mother households. So I think America, American media needs to reflect um, a modern, a modern family, which is a family where both the husband and the wife work and they're juggling a lot. How has it changed in the past 10, 15 years? Is it getting better or are these um, unrealistic misrepresentations of women um, becoming more ubiquitous? The, the misrepresentations of women have become more ubiquitous. I mean, I, um, Jean Kilborn, who made the film Killing Us Softly back in the 70s, says it's worse now than it's ever been. You just look at the um, how reality show TV has really kind of launched the mean girls culture. You know, it's funny because I don't, you know, I don't know. I, maybe I'm just lucky and I have a, an incredible array of women friends, but I... I don't know Mean Girls, and, and mm-hmm. maybe I've come across them and maybe I've just sort of avoided them, but I don't have Mean Girls in my life, and, and, and it, it's 
sad to me because it's almost like reality TV has made it okay and it's, they've almost encouraged culture that's, that pits women against women. And the news media has done that as well. The news media constantly is looking for a story where they'll pit women against women. Um, so it's gotten worse. What do you say or what's your response to the refrain, the common refrain that, oh, this is what consumers want. They like their reality TV. That's why the ratings are so good. That's a great question. And my answer is that it's not what consumers want. Consumers just aren't said anything else, and they're not even consciously consuming that. And I, what our film does, that I'm told, and I, and I think it's true, um, is when you see the film, you won't ever watch media or consume media the same. And, and, I, and you'll be more aware. I mean, I've had friends who were the biggest Housewives of XYZ County fans who don't watch them anymore. If you see the film and if you have a discussion with your family and your friends and your colleagues and your loved ones afterwards, I think it's going to start to kind of seep into you and you're not going to want to consume that anymore. I think in some cases, too, people are going to, um, they're going to have, um, you know, they'll have media facts of sorts. Mm-hmm. I think I did that, actually. I went through some stuff in high school and I, and I stopped consuming those magazines and I, I rarely even read them, not because I, I mean, I do at times want to read about a really interesting woman or some woman that inspires me, um, but for the most part, I, I have to skim them because most of those magazines, they don't really make you feel good about yourself. They make you feel like there's something wrong with you or like you should be doing more to be more perfect or more this or that, and I don't really have time to try and be more this or that. You know, I'm busy. And so recognizing that, like you said, advertisers really do target um, men and boys in this, it seems like... Um, there's something of a responsibility for, for them as well. What should boys do, what, what should men do to send the message to to, their, to the networks, the television stations that they watch, that this isn't, um, this isn't me and uh, this isn't my conception of women? I love that you just said that because that is so powerful. And that's why this is not a women's movement, but it's a women's rights movement. And thank you. I mean, what I would love to see is some men and boys be a part of our campaign where it's delivered to a podcast and they say, I'd like to see women, um, I'd like to see women in their 60s who look like they're in their 60s on this TV show, or I'd like to see less sort of sexualized women in the beer commercials between the football games or whatever it is, mm-hmm. you know, or I'd like to see a father in a TV series who is a stay-at-home dad. Whatever it is, like, it would be, it would be invaluable to have fathers and, and men and boys tell us what they want to see, um, especially if what they're seeing doesn't make them feel good about themselves or women in general. It was a tremendous movie, and I implore all our listeners to um, to see it because it really surveys how um, how warped the media landscape is and, and the media representations of women. And I think when when people get a chance to watch misrepresentation, they'll, they'll start to think more critically about the, the images that they're consuming, and hopefully, um, like you said, start to really work to change those images. Yes, thank you, thank you so much. I hope you all join us at misrepresentation.org. Thank you very much. into the room with a pencil in your hand you see somebody naked you say who is that man you try so hard but you don't understand
up your head You ask, is this where it is? And somebody points to you and says It is his And you say, what's mine? And someone else says, well, what is? And you say, oh my God Yeah. You go watch the geek Who immediately walks up to you When he hears you speak And he says Well how does it feel my friend To be such a freak It's your 75 cent coffee fix in the sub. It's your source for reasonably priced, creatively named stew and vegan brownies. It's your purveyor of bicycle delivered local produce. It's also a place where volunteers can realize their vision of responsible business and where like minded students can explore UBC's food systems. Hark! Sprouts is currently accepting applications for next year's executive board and is encouraging ambitious, creative, and disciplined students from all faculties and year levels to apply. Come by Sprouts in the sub basement to learn more about our projects and how to get involved. I tried to kick the ball, but my tenny flew right out. I'm red as a beat, cause I'm so embarrassed. Welcome back to the Terry Project Podcast on CITR 101.9 FM at the University of British Columbia. My name is Gordon Caddick, and I'm sitting here with my producers Sam Fenn and Molly DeYoung. Uh, we're just going to talk about misrepresentation, uh, which recently screened at the Vancouver International Film Festival. How did you guys like it? I mean, I, I thought it was good. I thought it was well produced. I was interested in the subject matter. Um, I didn't think it was necessarily as innovative as its as its feedback merited. Like there was so much talk generated around the movie, and then when I watched it, I enjoyed it. Um, I was interested in it. I thought it was a good film. But I was sort of waiting for the new argument. I was waiting for the groundbreaking uh, thesis to be presented, and it, it never really hit for me. Yeah, I mean, I would say that this is a deeply important yet deeply flawed movie. The message is is really important. The takeaway for me, at least, is that we really need more female writers. We need more female protagonists in movies and books and um, TV shows, and we need to start reimagining what women's roles can be in our popular fiction um, that, that aren't totally tied to an idea of male sexual fantasy. But beyond that, I felt like 
at, at its worst, this movie could be a, a little bit like watching a rap music video with the rap taken out of it and Tipper Gore talking over top of it. Maybe that's not fair, but it, but I, there is there is a sort of quiet parental conservatism to this movie that I don't think people have talked about very much, which is that, I mean, maybe you guys disagree, but it seemed a little anti anti-sexy is that is that the way to put it is the problem that we don't have powerful women on television or the problem that women are wearing short skirts on television well i think there's definitely a pro-sex feminist argument um that this movie just completely glosses over and fails to address but i think fundamentally the point is that these women are portrayed not as dynamic characters but one-dimensional and that their sexuality is is all they are just objects of um, the male gaze as jennifer said I think that's totally valid, and I do think that in Newsom's defense, this isn't exactly a topic that can be talked about too much. Whether or not she presented groundbreaking new views on it, it's obviously something that more awareness needs to be raised about, and she picked a really effective avenue of um, distributing her information. And I think in terms of the pro-sexy feminist argument, I, I understand and I agree that technically a woman should be able to show her cleavage without, you know, men over being overcome with lust. <laughs> but the, the reality of the situation is that if a woman presents herself sexually, she's going to be objectified. And so I think that, that the sexy feminist, like, I think that the time for that isn't now. I think that the time, I think that now what needs to be done is to sort of start to deconstruct the sexual perceptions of women. And then once we've really worked with what exists now, like once we really start to change the representations of women in the media i think that's when like the empowered sexy woman has her place i think that that's when we can start to push that but i think that now that that would get lost i think that now it would be really hard for the public to differentiate between Mm -hmm. an empowered sexy woman and an objectified sexy woman like where is that line and how do we find it right and nobody i mean i certainly wouldn't argue that women aren't objectified in especially the news media. I felt like that was maybe the most disturbing part of the movie where she was showing, you know, news female news anchors scantily clad and and dancing around as if that has something to do with the news they're supposed to deliver. I mean, and the most offensive thing about that is that you know that these are these are um, women who are very smart and talented and completely capable of delivering a, a real piece of journalism, you know, and and that's getting obscured by this profit-based desire to have them, um, as she put in the in the interview, all sexed up. Maybe maybe I'll bring up another another slight problem I had with the the movie, and that was that it seemed to sort of treat the um, media and the people kind of in a monolithic way, or or at least not with a great deal of detail. I mean, it, it seemed a little bit like this is a middle-class white women's story in America, and I wanted, I wanted to know how does, for instance, how does the manufacture of culture that goes on in Hollywood affect more marginalized groups or people maybe even in the developing world who consume American media? Yeah, I think you're right in raising that criticism. It was really conspicuous in its absence that there weren't any um, international voices, nor were there any any discussion of alternate media or media sources that, that paint a better portrait of women. So you're right, and she does 
treat it monolithically. She doesn't highlight some of the things that the media does right very often, and she doesn't highlight those other voices. I want to sort of defend her on this one, just in that, in some ways, she's presenting an argument, right? So in presenting her film, it's not so different from presenting an academic paper and that you have to focus your argument because you can't possibly encompass every perspective and you have to you have to know that right but does she pre present well, us an alternative well what i think she should have done rather than necessarily delving into an alternative because maybe that just was beyond the scope of her documentary but i think that she definitely could have acknowledged what she was focusing on she could have made her concessions in the same way that you make concessions in an academic paper you know she could have noted that this is that she's you know that there is a target audience for this the other point that that i want to talk about sam um and molly was the the focus on on very powerful establishment female voices, Condoleezza Rice and, and these sorts of people. Right. Well, how did you feel about that? Well, that's problematic. <laughs> right. I mean, it is and it isn't. I mean, I think the the film makes a really good point when it says you you can't be what you can't see. Right. Um, maybe to put that more academically, that that the media doesn't just represent objective reality, it actually creates new ontological categories that people can um, practice in their own lives. So if you see a female secretary of state and you're, you know, a 10-year-old girl and you're dreaming and imagining about what you want to be when you grow up, that's an availability that maybe otherwise wouldn't occur to you. And, um, and to that extent, it's completely appropriate to have Condoleezza Rice on to uh, you know to represent females, but to another extent, I mean, she, her boss, and and her administration did as much as they possibly could to scale back women's issues, to try to deprive women of uh, the right to choose. You know, I I just think to to put her on without some discussion of her politics is sort of a reprehensible omission. Yeah, I definitely, I was a little bit irked by that, but I was encouraged by, I think the strongest points in the film were when she gave voice to the elementary school children. Mm -hmm. I think that those were the most powerful moments, and those were the moments that really elucidated the points that, that Condoleezza Rice couldn't. I mean, there was another example of a, a middle school girl who was running for some sort of class presidency, mm -hmm. I think. That taught me more, or showed me more about uh, of a woman trying to um, trying to gain high office than whatever Condoleezza Rice said in that film. Yeah, no, I, I, I would agree that it is reprehensible that she didn't mention in any way um, their politics. She, it's the same as Sarah Palin. She, she, it wasn't just Condoleezza Rice. She brought up a, a lot of political women who, I don't know if they really serve any purpose <laughs> to the feminist movement other than that they are women <laughs> in a uh, high power position. So, I mean, once, as we said, it doesn't mean she needed to exclude that, to exclude them, or that they aren't relevant to our film, because they certainly are. But I think the overall note that we're saying here is that more concessions could have been made of sort of a deeper analytical nature. Yeah, I think that's fair. But overall, I would sort of conclude in saying that it was, it did have a very, I think, accurate, broad, and comprehensive um, analysis of what the state of modern media is and what the representations of women are. It brought that to the fore and made us uh, look at it critically and it implored us to uh, to change it. And for that, I would laud the film. I think that this film can only be criticized so much because, as you said, it presents an important topic. It gets its point across, it's digestible, and 
being digestible and understandable and relatable maybe is more important than having that analytical analysis that we are talking about, right? She can re- the film really can communicate to, uh, to women about the issue. So in that way, I think she's really achieved her purpose. And I obviously, it seems like I'm sort of out on the margins of, of our group here, but I, I think that this is a, also <clears throat> a deeply important movie and everyone should see it. But then I think the, some of the problems that have been raised uh, should be the topic of many more documentaries to come that maybe take a more nuanced approach or, or focus on alternative media or, um, you know, provide some solutions to these problems that aren't you know, sort of parental, conservative um, solutions. So that would be my takeaway from it. Still totally essential movie, very well done. That was the Terry Project podcast on CITR 101.9 FM at the University of British Columbia. Produced by Sam Fenn and Molly DeYoung. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and tune back next time for part two of the journalism episode in which I speak to prominent environmentalist Bill McKibben. You might also want to listen to the raw, unedited conversations that were featured in this podcast. You can find those at terry.ubc.ca. Thanks. Electric prunes for Vox, bringing you the exciting new sound of the Vox wah-wah pedal. Let the electric prunes demonstrate the difference. Play it prunes first without the wah-wah pedal. Now, listen to the difference when you push that Vox wah-wah pedal down. You can even make your guitar sound like a sitar. It's the now sound. It's what's happening. That's why the electric prunes, animals, Herman's Hermits, Paul Revere and the Raiders, Stones, the Seeds are all using the Vox Wah Wah pedal. And it works with any amplifier. If you're a professional musician or want to sound like one, get with the new Vox Wah Wah pedal at your Vox dealer now. As demonstrated on Rumble Tone Radio Agogo, heard Wednesdays from 3 till 5 p.m. here on CITR. Good sunny afternoon to you, ladies and gentlemen. It's a minute after 3 o'clock on this gorgeous Wednesday afternoon here in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. You're tuned to CITR 101.9 FM. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Rumble Tone Radio A Go Go for the next two hours. Fuzzed up, demented rock and roll with a special segment all about the dead cats who are celebrating the release of this amazing DVD that you're going to find out all about at 4.20 this afternoon uh, when Nick of the Dead Cats calls on in and uh, plenty of Dead Cats material headed your way as well, plus new material, a new single from Ladies Night and No Feelings, as well as the Maxines, the new Brains CD, along with the Prophylactics and the Oz, that and a whole lot more and tons of Dead Cats coming your way if you're ready. If you're set, let's go, go. To the Batmobile. Let's go. Atomic batteries to power.